Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So we're coming again this week to another passage of a bunch of names. Remember we preached through the genealogy a few weeks ago, or quite a while ago, the genealogy of Jesus there in the end of chapter 3. But here now in chapter 6, we come to another list of names. Luke moves into this section with another kind of non-committal declaration of time. He says, in these days... Luke, as you can see, and we've noted before, he's not real caught up in the chronology of this, then this, then this, then this. But he says, in these days, either meaning in the days of when he was teaching on the Sabbath that we just got off of last week, or in these days of his ministry up there in Galilee, we don't really know. But just in these days, he calls these disciples. As as non-definitive as the statement of in these days is, there's something very definitive going on. Something really substantial is happening. Though the time understanding is kind of, well, in these days, some point in here, Jesus did this. It doesn't mean that what was going on wasn't important. This is a very, very important shift in the ministry of Jesus. He gets done with this prayer we see in verse 12, verse 13. He calls together all of these disciples. Jesus is gathering a lot of followers. They all come to see him. And after praying through the night, he calls out 12 of them and he names them apostles. He calls them apostles. And the, the Greek word there, apostle, is a very specific title. It, it, it means something. It's not like, well, I'm just going to call you apostle. That's just for the heck of it. The apostle has a meaning. It's, it's a sent one. It is one who is, is commissioned or sent forth, according to Strong's definition of the Greek, apostolos. So there's this Greek word, he calls them these apostles, and Jesus is shifting this ministry or making this climatic change, really, from not just him there speaking, but having a select group of men, 12 of them, that he's commissioning to send out, to proclaim the message, to take the gospel on out from there, which is what we see in the rest of the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, which is Luke's second volume of his works, these apostles being sent forth, taking the gospel message to the rest of the world. There's an important mission ahead for Jesus. And this mission that we saw him talk about here in Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That mission, the mission that we see, like our board out front says, Luke 19.10, that he came to seek and to save the lost. That mission is getting, uh, getting men uh, around it to be sent out on this mission. 
So, very important turning point in the ministry of Jesus, the calling of these disciples. So, before he makes this big decision, though, Jesus does something peculiar. Does something, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to see Jesus do this, and I'll talk more about why. He, he does something peculiar. We read in verse 12, In these days, he went out to the mountain. That's not the peculiar part. There's mountainous regions around here. He goes out to the mountain to pray. Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray. And, he conti- and all night he continued in prayer to God. All night <laughs> Jesus continues in prayer to God. So you figure sun goes down, I don't know, 8 o'clock, depending on the season, comes up around 6, that's 4, 6, 10 hours. Jesus spends that night in prayer to God. Doesn't, does it strike anyone else as weird that Jesus goes into prayer? I, and, I, and so some of you are like, well, damn, we've been at church a long time. Jesus prays many times in our Gospels, right? We know Jesus prays, but really think about it. Jesus, before making this decision, goes off on a mountain and doesn't just say, you know, oh, God, help me make this decision. He spends 10 hours in prayer before making this decision. This is, this is so peculiar to me, and I'm just going to share a couple of reasons why I think this is peculiar before we get into the content, really, of the sermon. But there's a couple reasons why this is peculiar, that Jesus would go and pray all night before making this decision. And the first one is that Luke has worked hard at making sure we know Jesus is one with God the Father. Jesus is declaring himself as the Son of God. He says, just previously last week, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The voice comes down from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes down on him. Luke has worked hard. We have the birth narratives about this one being the one who's going to come from the line of David, who's going to reign on the throne, that has talked on and on and really worked at proving the point that Jesus is God. So if Jesus is God in the human flesh... What a mystery it is that the one who is God seeks God in prayer. Does anyone else find that peculiar? Jesus seeks God in prayer. And there's a lot of mystery. I bring it up not because I have, well, this is the reason why. There's a lot of mystery of the Trinity here. That Jesus is is one with the Father, yet at the same time goes off and prays to the Father before making this decision. He is God, he is the Son of God. He's of one essence with the Father. He'll go on later to say that I and the Father are one. But yet still he prays. And that's a part of that is tied up in the mystery of the Trinity. But what's your reaction to God prays? Lots of times what we go to is guilt. Uh, and that's what a lot of pe- preachers will do, right? They'll say, Jesus prayed, you don't even pray. <laughs> You should feel, you, you bad, Jesus good. It's the kind of the way lots of, lots of sermons and lots of the ways we would take away from, lots of um, things that we would take away from the idea that Jesus goes off and prays for 10 hours. You need to pray too. And because Jesus prayed all night for 10 hours, we all should feel guilty and should feel bad that we don't pray as much as Jesus. But I think there's something far better than guilt here. There's something way better than just guilt, that Jesus did it, we should do it, and because you don't, as much as Jesus did, you should feel guilty. We've all heard sermons, and maybe even when we read this, feel that guilt ourselves. And here's the reality. If you feel guilt about um, your lack of prayer, which we probably, I don't know, did anybody stay up since 8 o'clock last night praying to this morning? I mean, 
if you feel guilt about what you should pray, that, about your lack of prayerfulness, here's my advice. Repent. Look to Christ. Receive forgiveness. Move on. <laughs> move forward. Start praying. So if there's some guilt there, I don't want to just say, oh, don't worry about it. But at the same time, I think there's something more than just guilt here. Jesus goes, do you think Jesus prayed just because he knew he was supposed to? Like he thought, well, in 2,000 years, there's going to be a congregation sitting in the Mount Air, and they're not going to be praying as much as they should. So I'm going to go pray all night so that they'll know they're supposed to pray. Is that what, is Jesus just praying because he's supposed to? And that we all need to feel guilty and then leave and then get in our prayer closets because we know we're supposed to. Is that the motive behind this? No. No, no, no. Jesus prays. Jesus prays because there is something. He's making use of this incredible avenue of communicating with the Father about this decision that is coming up. See the Savior, not just to make yourself feel guilty, but making use of this incredible avenue. This has been opened up to us by the work of Jesus on the cross, making us able to pray to the Father But he doesn't just see us in condemnation. He sees us as children who now have this amazing avenue. You can express your desires. You can express your petitions. You can express your concerns to the creator of the universe. Do you have any decisions on your horizon? Don't feel guilty because you haven't prayed. I mean, if you haven't prayed about it, I guess feel guilty, repent. But don't make that the main issue. The God of the universe is ready to listen. And if God the Son thought, you know, I I want to make use of the the creator of the universe, God the Father being on my side, I am going to pray to him. I think that's the beautiful thing. God himself incarnate makes use of I have the ear of my heavenly Father who loves me, who is for me, who is working on my behalf. And so he prays. It's astonishing because, the, because of this reality. God in human flesh prays to God the Father who is in heaven. A mystery of the Trinity there. So that's one reason why it's weird, but just as a quick introduction here. <laughs> the second reason why it's weird, Jesus is and knows that God is sovereign. Jesus knows God is sovereign. So I'm a, I'm a Romans 8.28 kind of guy. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that God, in the mystery of his sovereignty, is making sure everything goes the way that he wants it to go, and at the end of the day, it's all going to go just like he wants it to go. And as much as I cling to Romans 8, 28, Jesus knew it and believed it way better than I do. He's more full of faith in God being a sovereign God who will accomplish his purposes any more, more than any of us ever would dream of being. Jesus knows God is sovereign. So he could approach it this way. God is sovereign. He's going to help me make the decision. I can't make a wrong decision. I guess I'm just going to pick 12 guys and then it'll be what it'll be because God is sovereign. He doesn't, even though he is fully confident in God's ability to do exactly what he wants to do, it does not hinder him from lifting up his voice to God, to seeking God, to searching for wisdom, to asking of God even though he believes in a sovereign God who rules over everything and is himself sovereign over all of creation. So it's weird. Jesus goes to pray. Jesus goes to pray. And the main thrust of that is not guilt, but is, listen, church, if you are a child of God, 
your father has an ear for you. You know, they listened to a weird podcast. I know how's my notes. I shouldn't do this. I listened to a weird podcast this week about a guy who he had he got through college, got his degree, and he told his mom, I'm going to go on a listening tour. <laughs> mom, you can imagine what the mom's like, you're going to do what? And I'm going to go on a listening tour. And he walked from the East Coast to the West Coast and just with a sign that says, here to listen. That's all. That was his big mission, here to listen. And he just was going to listen to people's stories. And, and the way that really resonated with so many people to have an ear of someone to listen have you seen the commercials? And this has been several years. That, but they had a guy who was like on a city street somewhere. Had a table and a box of Kleenex and two chairs. And all he was doing was calling people to sit down, just to ask them how they were doing, just to listen. And the huge responses that he got from just being available to listen. Better than somebody walking across coast to coast. Better than someone sitting on a chair outside of the on the street over here to listen to you. The creator of the universe has an ear. He listens. He listens. Jesus prays. All of that is intro into what I think is really the most shocking thing about this passage. So I had to mention it because Jesus praying, we got to mention it. But what's really shocking about this passage, and I got kind of one sentence over all of it. What matters most is not the followers, but the one who is followed. What matters most is not the followers, but the one who is followed. Jesus gets done with his prayers. He gets done praying all night. Verse 13, he, when he came, when the day came, he calls his disciples. He gathers up all these people and he calls 12 of them who he named apostles. We know most of their names, right? If you've been in church at all around very long, you know the disciples' names. You might have done a song or two that has the names of the apostles. We know their names. But when you dig into the backgrounds of these people, when you really try to understand who they are, you see where they've come from and, and the, the, the background stories that they have. You read that and you, you, you see Jesus came off the mountain to pray, calls 12 people, calls them apostles, calls his group of people to himself. You read that and you think, Jesus, after hearing about these guys and their potentialities and how, what kind of people they are, maybe you should go back and pray a little more. <laughs> It's kind of the, 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 the thrust that you get when you read about who he has called to do himself. All these guys, you think, Jesus, you spent all night praying, and this is your knockout team. This is your team that's going to succeed. This is, this is the choices. These are the choices that you make. We have here four fishermen. This, this is, Jesus is launching a new faith, a, new, a whole new worldview, construct, out of Judaism, faith in him as the Messiah. He's, and who does he pick? He doesn't pick the Pharisees. He doesn't pick these highly educated um, I don't know, religious leaders of the day. He doesn't pick the high businessmen, the ones who are in charge, the entrepreneurs. He picks four fishermen, one despised tax collector, Levi Matthew that we read about, and a, and a religious zealot, which is the guy who... Um, it was such a religious fanatic that he wanted to overthrow the Roman authorities and just and, and start a new religious state. He hates Rome, this religious zealot. And who has he partnered up with? Matthew, who has sold himself out to the Roman governors, Roman authority, by becoming a tax collector. Jesus gathers these people and you look at it and you think, 
I don't think this is getting off the ground. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, it's like picking a kickball team at random. You're kind of like, I don't know, this team, I should have, we should have made a little few better choices here than this team we've got together. You read these, this group and you just, I don't know, Jesus, I think you probably should go back in prayer a little more and get this figured out. Jesus, we see here a group of people who are going to bumble along, and it's kind of borne out that this is not maybe a great choice. These people are going to bumble along all through with Jesus and the rest of his ministry. They're going to misunderstand most of what he says. They're going to totally misunderstand and not get the idea of his main purpose with his death. They're going to struggle through disbelief in him. Peter's going to say, you know, no way, you can't go and die. They're going to deny him at the end. When, they, when he gets arrested in the garden, they're all going to scatter. They're going to smite the shepherd and the sheep are going to flee. They're going to be gone. And then one of them, once he's resurrected, is going to say, I won't even believe that until I see it with my own eyes. This group is a mess. This group of people, they are a mess. But they also are a group of people that are going to turn the world upside down when Jesus ascends back to heaven. Why? What matters most is not the followers it is the one who is followed. What matters most is not the followers, it is the one who follows. And these people will go on to be preachers of the gospel. They will go on missionary journeys. They will plant churches. They will write nine books of the Bible, five attributed just to John. I got that right, this, I corrected myself. Five attributed just to the disciple, the apostle John. They're going to write nine books total of the Bible as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. How can they do that? How can this bumbling group of people who fishermen, tax collectors, religious zealots, how can they go on and make this, this, that we sit here today based upon their ministry, based upon what they do after Christ ascends to heaven? How can, how can he work through these people? What matters most is not the followers, but the one who is followed. Their greatness was not in themselves, but in their master. Not because they were strong, but because of the strength of him who they followed, they will accomplish God's purposes. God does this for his own glory. He picks these people for a reason. He does it for his own glory and for the good of his people. He's still doing this today. He's still doing this today. What's important is not the followers. It is the one who follows. God still gathers people from a wide assortment of vocations and giftings and all sorts of uh, intellectual abilities, and he gathers all of them. And the difference that is made is not in the followers that are gathered, but in the one that they follow. He does it this way for for his own glory and for our good. For his own glory, because we see that no one will mistake God is the one doing the work. You guys all familiar with the story of Gideon and the 300 men? I hear no. Josh, Judges chapter 7. I didn't get that. Judges chapter 7. I mean, it's a pretty famous story. We know the idea of Gideon and the 300 men. But chapter 7, we see this uh, Gideon is going to fight against this army. And he gathers with all of his, his troops. Even at the start of the, of the battle, Gideon's army is way outnumbered. The, the people he's going to face, they way outnumber him. But the Lord says to Gideon in verse 2 of chapter 7 in the book of Judges, Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Let Israel boast over me, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God is concerned here that if they were to fight the Midianites and win, they would think, well, of course we won. We did this. 
But to keep them from doing that, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. In one moment, he went from 32,000 people to 10,000. He was already outnumbered to begin with. (laughs) Dropping down to 10,000 people, that's a bad sign. He doesn't end there, right? Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And if any one of you, any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So the image, they get down to the lake and there are some guys that, they get down like a dog on all fours, put their face in the, in the river and drink. And there are some that get down on their knees and they put it in their hands, which is my preferred way to drink. I'm not sure how you guys do it, but I put my hand and drink from my hands with the water hose. You know, that's kind of the way that I did it. So that's what they're looking at. And so they, they set these people out. The number of those who lapped, putting their hands through their mouth, was 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. 32,000 down to 300. That's a bad move. That's like picking these 12 bumbling (laughs) disciples to be your main guys. Why in the world would you do that? God is going to get his glory. And he's going to work a victory through these 300 men. I won't spoil it for you. Go home and read the rest of Judges chapter 7. But God, believe it or not, takes these 300 men and beat this giant army that had outnumbered them already when they had 32,000 people. God does this. because, And the reason why he's able to do this, what matters most is not the followers, but the one who is followed. What matters most is the one who is followed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse says, says that we are jars of clay that are carrying a treasure of surpassing worth so that it can be shown that the, the treasure as it is poured out is not because the earthen vessel, the clay jar was so valuable, but the treasure that it contained was so valuable. valuable. So he does it for his own glory, but he also does it for our good. Three reasons in closing. He does it for our own good. God does this so that he gets the glory, so that no one mistakes. You take four fishermen, a tax collector, a religious zealot, and a bunch of other just random people and a traitor, and you move the purpose of the gospel forward through these people, God's done it. He does it for his own glory. But he also does this for our good. When God has gathered us here, he has done this for our own good. He does it for our own good because it keeps us humble keeps us humble and on equal footing with all of those around us. The reality is God calls sinners. And you sitting here this morning and me standing up here are no more or less a sinner than anyone else around us. God works through imperfect, sinful people, and that's all of us. There is no hierarchy in the body of Christ. We have different roles, sure. We have different roles. I'm standing up here, you're sitting out there. But there is no hierarchy. God calls sinners. He doesn't call those who are really lofty and then and, and all those who aren't, he leaves out. We're all those who are out. We're all those who aren't worth being called by God. But God in his grace and his mercy calls sinners to himself. 
God calls sinners. And he does this for his own glory and for our good so that when we are called in, no one stands around and says, well, look at me. God called me because I'm special. The only thing special about your calling was that you were a sinner. And God in his grace and mercy called you. And it levels the playing field. We all gather here, if you're a believer in Christ, as a redeemed sinner whom God has shown mercy to. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Peter and John, they're in trouble. They'd healed a man that had gone lame. And they're in trouble, uh, and they preach this great sermon in Acts chapter 4, but they make this remark. They say when they, and about Peter and John, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that these men, that they had been with Jesus. What mattered with these men was not who they were as, fo- as followers, who they were as people. What mattered was who they followed. What matters is that they had been with Jesus. So God does it for his own glory, and he does it for our own good because it keeps us humble, but it also keeps us free. When God chooses the, the sinners to move through, he does it to keep us humble, and he does it because it keeps us free. The load is not on you. The load is not on us. We are to pray as Jesus did. We are to act in obedience. We are to believe and we are to rest. One of the reasons why I think we're so busy in our world today is we all have so much to prove. We have so much to prove. We got to be able to say, you know, and you, you know it because somebody will say, well, how are you doing? Well, I've just been real busy. And that's the badge we wear, right? I've been busy, therefore I have value because I didn't just uh, binge watch Netflix for three hours. That's only for my generation. But uh, I, I didn't just, you know, I'm valuable. I'm busy. And we, we have this need, this busyness to prove that we have value, that we are worth something, that we have so much to prove. We have to prove that we're worth something. I'm busy doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing the other thing. And we do all of these things. We get hard at work right before we break down into a nervous heap of energy that collapses into itself and forms a giant black hole. That's what ends up happening. Prove, I've got to prove, I've got to prove, I've got to prove. Gospel comes to us. God calls sinners. He calls the uneducated, the common, all of us. He calls us to keep us free. To keep us free. We are convinced that we have to keep earning our place on the team by our own merits and our value. I've got to prove it. I've got to prove it. I've got to prove it. But this team, this family, this gospel is different. This isn't about your perfected work. This is about the one working on our behalf, our Savior. And having begun by His Spirit, His work, we don't add to it, Paul says in Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, do you finish the work on the flesh? No, God does the work. God does it this way because it keeps us free. It doesn't get to work to perform for God. It is rest in who God is and what He has done. Rest in who He is and what He has done and live in the freedom that is found there. So He does this to keep us humble, to keep us free. And He does this because it keeps us safe in Him. Having done all this, Scripture says to stand. Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God. God will supply and bring His children all the way home. You didn't merit 
to be able to come in. It wasn't like God looked down and saw, oh, I need this person's got this person's real special, they're real special. He looked down, he saw sinners, and he calls them to himself. He calls them in. It keeps us free, and it keeps us safe. You didn't earn your way in. You know how you're kept in? Not by earning it, but by God keeping you in. He will supply and bring his children all the way home. Each of these disciples finishes the task that's given to him. Philippians 4, chapter 4, verse 6, my favorite verse, verses, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God calls this riffraff here in Luke chapter 6. Jesus calls these disciples to himself, and he's still in the business of calling, I don't want to call you riffraff, it's not very nice. He still calls the ordinary people. He still calls mailmen. He still calls people that make monuments. He still calls, you know, he still calls all of us, retired school teachers. He calls, he just calls. He calls. Why? It's how he gets the glory. From all different stripes. Not about the followers. It's about the one we follow. Jesus Christ, the righteous, came to earth, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, bearing our wrath, bearing our scorn as our substitute on the cross, goes, takes that sin all the way into the grave, resurrects from the dead for our justification so that everyone, regardless, can look to him, place their faith in him, trust in him, and be forgiven of their sin and inherit eternal life. This is what the one we follow has done. The greatness is not the followers. It is the one we follow. It is the one we follow. And the one we follow who begins this work in us will see us all the way home. He will see us all the way home. Let's pray. Father, I, I, just, I ask that you would encourage our hearts this morning. I pray that you would enliven us in the gospel truth. It's good news to me, God. It's good news to me that you can use bumbling messed up, imperfect sinners. And that your grace can shine across the spectrum, including me, including all of us here this morning. Keeps, I I, I want to rejoice in that, God. I want to rejoice in that. I want to live in the freedom of that. I didn't earn my place in the family. I was adopted in. You set your love on us. You set your love on me. And I want to live in the freedom of that, God. Father, we want to lift up your name and rest secure in that reality. Help us, God, to do that. This morning we pray in Christ's name. Amen.